Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you, first of all, for, um, for coming. I'm genuinely excited and, and, and surprised to see so many of you come uh, so far um, from such hard distances. As some of you have told me uh, to be here with us this evening. I'm, I'm honored to be here. I want to thank my friends at the Educational Bookshop, which is like my second home. Jerusalem is like my second home when I'm here, and, or my first home when I'm here, and Educational Bookshop is like the living room. It's where I uh, spend a lot of time thinking and reading and reflecting and exhaling. And so I'm super excited to uh, be in partnership with them. I didn't come uh, to Palestine uh, this summer expecting to give a talk, um, but it was through the relationships and the connections and the conversations uh, that we've had over the last few uh, weeks and months that have led to this. So I was super excited to, to be a part of it. And of course, to be in conversation with you is very, very exciting. It's an honor. Um, the first uh, few times I came here, um, Agamir has been part of one of my stops. And to think about the work that you all do uh, and to think about the significance of thinking about the captive at this moment of mass incarceration, whether it's in the United States or whether it's here uh, in 48, uh, whether it's in 48, whether it's in the West Bank or whether it's in Gaza, we have to think about these things and take the prisoners seriously. Um, we live in a moment where prisoners are being erased, where we resolve our social contradictions by hiding and erasing the vulnerable, the mentally ill, the drug addicted, the dropout, and the prisoner. And so for you to put a spotlight on those people who are captive and to work within, around, outside, uh, and through the system in order to create and produce justice is nothing short of extraordinary. And to be sitting here with a freedom fighter and with a group that is committed to freedom fighting um, is just a wonderful honor and pleasure for me. Um, I was asked to talk about my book, which is about uh, the war on the vulnerable from Ferguson to Flint and beyond. My book specifically focused on the forms of violence, of state violence that were occurring in the United States around 2014, and that continued to the time of the publication of the book and obviously continued to persist now. Uh, but the subtitle of the book is And Beyond, and in many ways for me, Palestine is the beyond. To talk about state violence, to talk about mass incarceration, to, take, to talk about land theft, to talk about unchecked power, to talk about white supremacy, to talk about capitalism, is to talk about the existence of a settler colonial state, which is what we're in right now. And so there's no way for me to talk about the conditions of the United States without thinking about that in a global context. So whenever we talk about the issues on the ground in any country we're in, I think it's important to think about that and think about the people in that country globally. And as an African born in America, there's been a long tradition of black people struggling and fighting and thinking in collaboration with Palestinians about freedom. So when you travel here and you meet Black Panthers or former Black Panthers, when you read the letters of, of people like George Jackson, who was captured in the United States before being liberated but ultimately killed, 
and you look in his prison cell and he had 99 books and one of them was the poetry of a Palestinian freedom fighter, that's a reminder. When Malcolm X travels uh, through the Middle East and meets uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser and begins to think about Arab nationalism, but then also begins to think about Arafat, begins to think about the PLO, and begins to think about the connectedness of liberation, and he writes an article called On Zionist Logic. Malcolm X becomes a global figure. The, 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 the kind of liberal media politics would have you think that Malcolm came to Mecca, made Hajj, saw white people for the first time, and turned into some multicultural action figure. But the truth is far more interesting and radical, and that is that Malcolm understood the connectedness of the struggle in Egypt and the struggle in Ghana and the struggle in Cuba and understood that if we could connect those struggles, we could have a more robust freedom struggle and we could have a greater chance at achieving the kind of justice and the kind of outcomes that we want. After the Six-Day War, after the, after the Six-Day War, you saw the Southern, the, I'm sorry, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the United States in uh, six-day war was in June, so in July and August of that month, you saw them writing about how Palestine was was neo-colonialism. So you had black people struggling and fighting across the board. Jesse Jackson, the old Jesse Jackson, back in '84, was talking about a free Palestine before he was seduced by the kind of liberal fumes of, of two-state solutions. He was talking about a radical politics in the United States. He ran for president in 1984 and 1988. So there are all these interesting moments where we have connected to one another, and for me, another point of connection was August 9th, 2014. August 9th, 2014 was when Mike Brown, a young boy in Ferguson, Missouri, in the Midwest of the United States, was killed. Mike Brown was not famous. Mike Brown was an 18-year-old kid who had just graduated high school. He was headed to college that Monday, and he was gunned down by a police officer. It's a story not unfamiliar to anyone living in historic Palestine. And the story of, of Mike Brown, the story of Ferguson, which my book talks about a little bit, is not to me about August 9th. Black people get killed by police all the time. Poor people get killed by police all the time. Muslims, Arabs, South Asians get killed by police all the time. Transgender folk, particularly, particularly transgender women, get killed by police in the United States all the time. So the death sequence of Mike Brown wasn't as important to me in terms of what we're going to talk about tonight on August 9th as what happened the next day on August 10th. Because on August 10th, we were able to see not just the locals of that state come together, the locals of that city come together, but we also saw people from other states come. We saw radicals come, we saw liberals come, we even saw some conservatives come. We saw people from all across the board come to march and protest the death of this boy by a police officer because the police officer was not being named, the police officer was not going to be arrested, the police officer was not going to be charged. There was an entire infrastructure in place to prevent the police officer from being held accountable. So we marched and we protested. And we've marched and protested my whole life. I've been an activist my whole life. But one thing that was interesting that day and, and that week was when I got down there, I saw more Palestinian Americans than I had seen in a long time. And I saw people demanding justice from Mike Brown, but I also, also saw people 
demanding an end to the war in Gaza, demanding an, an end to the siege in Gaza, which at the time had been going on uh, for eight years. And I saw the first signs of collaboration. Let me not use that word. The first sign, that means something different around here, y'all. <laughs> y'all mean something different by that. Um, I saw the first signs of partnership and connection in the new, among this, this new generation in really strong ways. Because that same month of Ferguson, August, that Ferguson summer we had was also when Gaza was under attack, even more than it is every day. Because there was a 51-day war on Gaza where the innocent were being destroyed, where schools were being blown up, where YMCAs were being blown up, where people were being attacked. And so at the same time that we were trying to get an officer arrested, we were trying to end this thing in Gaza. And there were interesting moments of collaboration on the fifth night, we were getting tear gassed. We were getting tear gassed every night. But on this particular night, we got tear gassed. And the media was saying that we were not being tear gassed because the media, the corporate media likes to tell a very particular story to protect the state and the interests of the state. And so they said, oh, there's no tear gas. They're just being smoked. Y'all you know, know tear gas better than I do. You know, no one confuses smoke with tear gas. You know when you're being tear gassed. And we were certainly being tear gassed. And I remember I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see. You know, we were gathering each other. The police were shooting people with rubber bullets. Someone got shot with a real bullet. And we were trying to figure out how to get home. We were trying to figure out how to get safe. We wanted justice. And we were standing up and literally standing in front of the police who were demanding that we go home because they had imposed a curfew. And we rejected the curfew. We stood the police down. And when they fired their tear gas and started shooting and started arresting people, people got frantic. People got scared. But some people also went to media. And they started telling their own story. And they said, hey, we're being tear gassed. Hey, we can't breathe. Hey, the police are coming for us. Hey, we are not safe. And what was interesting was people in Ferguson were now in conversation with people in the West Bank and people in Gaza, because now in social media, there were people in Gaza, as well as people in the West Bank, like Maryam Barghouti, who said, here's how you clean your eyes out. Here's how you protect yourself when you're being tear gassed. Here's how you wash your eyes out. That onion, they told me about that, that onion worked. Yeah, it worked. I didn't believe it at first. I was like, what am I doing with this onion? What are we doing? They like, they bring that onion close, it's gonna work, I'm telling you. And the milk worked, and the milk and magnesia worked, and the makeshift gas mask out of the t-shirt worked. And so on the one hand, it was a survival, a survival message of how we could get out of that night okay, but it also made some of us say, damn, what is going on in Ferguson that 12-year-olds and 15-year-olds can give us these type of strategies like that? And so we protested and we marched and we cried and we lost and we won and we lost and we protested and we cried and we marched. That's what the struggle's about. But for me, the story of Ferguson that I talk about in the book was also about what happened that January. We came here in January uh, 2015. I'm not a member of the Dream Defenders, but I did go on the Dream Defender delegation. One of the members of Black Lives Matter, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, Patrice Cullors was there. And some of the St. Louis activists and artists like Tef Poe, Tara T, Charlene Carruthers from Chicago, BYP 100, all these major organizations came here to figure out how we could have a conversation about state violence, how we could have a conversation about occupation, how we could learn about Palestine and how we could teach about Ferguson. 
that was important to us. And so for me, that moment in January of 2015 was an extension of that moment in August of 2014, which stands in some ways, in some ways on a tradition that goes all the way back, I would argue, to the Six Day War, and maybe even earlier. I don't want to go too far early, because some of us were trifling, you know, in the 40s and 50s, we didn't quite get this thing yet. But by the 60s, we got it, and, and there was a connection, and there was a relationship that began, and when we got here, we began to teach and learn, and we spent time in the West Bank. We didn't make it to Gaza, obviously, but we, we spent time in the West Bank. We spent time in 48. And we were able to have conversations. We went to places like Adamir. We went to places like Aswat. We went to places like Adana. And in each of those spaces, we were able to have conversations to understand, on the one hand, our similarities, being subject to state violence, being hated, being constantly under attack, being seen as either an incomplete or a non-citizen. We were able to look at the story of Mike Brown and say, wait a minute, there's some stuff here. Mike Brown got, didn't get stopped by the police officer for committing a major crime. He got stopped for jaywalking. His death sequence began with jaywalking. What does it mean for minor crimes to be policed? What does it mean for stop and frisk to operate? I do research here in, 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 in Palestine, and if I sit at Via Dolorosa for an hour, I'll watch 10 Palestinian children get stopped and searched and frisked for no reason other than being Palestinian and young and outside, or Palestinian and old and outside. Just being Palestinian is enough. And so I could see those similarities to the United States. I could see, I remember going to uh, Adala and, and they said, hey, can you, they told me this story about this uh, Palestinian boy inside of 48 who had been shot by police and the police said that it was self-defense. The police said that he attacked them with a knife. And then all of a sudden they looked at the video camera, they found a videotape and it showed that the boy didn't attack the police, that the boy was 10 feet from the police, that they dragged the boy back toward the police car and planted a knife on him. And they were like, can you believe that? And all the black people were like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, yeah, we've seen that movie before. There was a connection that we could understand. And so part of how we built a solidarity politics was understanding how these relationships of state violence are global. These relationships are global, not just in a symbolic sense, but in a very direct sense. Our NYPD, our Chicago Police Department, they're being trained by Israeli police. Israeli is monetizing the exploitation and surveillance of Palestinian bodies and exporting it globally so that people can see that the very same project that's engaged here in, in, 40, or in 48, I don't like to use that language, in 48 or in, in the West Bank, sometimes with the PA as proxies, is now being exported internationally. See what we do to them? We can make your NYPD like this. We can make your Chicago like this. We can regulate people here like this. So there's a relationship that's not just symbolic or theoretical, but it's direct and it's material. And we can see that. We have to deal with, as activists, with this question of solidarity, but this question of respectability. What does a respectable victim look like? Mike Brown, we can march for it because Mike Brown was, checking my time too, I don't wanna to talk too long. Mike Brown, we, we, could, we, could, we could talk about Mike Brown because Mike Brown was, had graduated high school and was going to college. Mike Brown had two parents. That's the, the language the media uses this morning, as if everybody doesn't have two parents. Even if you don't know where they are, you got two of them. <laughs> but there was a, a victim had to look a certain way for us to present them to the international community as somebody worthy of investment. What if Mike Brown was a thief? What if Mike Brown was a drug addict? What if Mike Brown were gay? What if Mike Brown were transgender? Should we not be fighting for him? Of course. 
And so I had some interesting conversations in the last few days about Tamimi. And very similar conversations emerged. There's a very courageous girl who stood up to state power and and deserves all the celebration she gets, deserves all the love she gets, deserves all the encouragement she gets, deserves all the attention she gets. One of the people, we have Dina Takuri here. I don't know if y'all know Dina Dina Takuri. She's Dina Takuri from AJ Plus. And you were one of the people who who had the opportunity to interview her, to talk to her. And if you've been following, and if you don't follow Dina on uh, social media, particularly on Instagram, you're missing amazing coverage of what's been happening uh, for the last few days with Ahitamimi, but also uh, her coverage of, of vulnerable people around the world, but particularly uh, Palestine, um, is extraordinary. So, so make sure you, you, you follow Dina. But there's another conversation to be had about Ahitamimi that I think we could all have as a global community, is who's worthy of investment? Yes, we're going to, we're going to protect Ahitamimi, and we're going to celebrate Ahitamimi, and we're going to talk about her as a figure of resistance, but what about the people who are also figures of resistance, who did 15 years in prison, who may not be as young, or may not be as blonde, or may not be as attractive. Do they have a face or a body that is worthy of investment and protection, that is worthy of of being a symbol of what's possible? What forms of resistance are we willing to celebrate? Because if we allow the media or, or, or liberalism to circumscribe how we resist or how we understand resistance, whether it's in the United States or Palestine or Uganda or anywhere, then we also fall victim to a certain kind of politics that I think is very dangerous. So whether you're looking at Ferguson or whether you're looking in Palestine, I think we have to think about those connections. And the last thing I'll say before I, I pass the mic, because I want to talk to you, I really want to talk to y'all, um, is that we don't, I, I think we have to be mindful not to reduce solidarity to a transaction or to an obsession with sameness. So oftentimes we talk about solidarity purely through the context of how we're alike. Well, we both face state violence, we both deal with police, we both deal with this, and therefore we should work together. But I think part of how we learn and how we grow is also by making sense of those contradictions, those tensions, those differences, the ways that when I come here and I talk to people in the West Bank, I have friends, I have friends from Hebron or Ramallah, who can't even come to this talk. Or if they come, they gotta sneak in. They homie gotta put them in the trunk or something. I can't wrap my mind around that as a black person in the United States. Because while our citizenship is called into question as a, as a, as a practical and social matter, there's a juridical matter, there's a legal matter that is very, very different that Palestinians in the West Bank, you know, that's what I have to think about and talk about and deal with that I can't quite relate to. I, I remember being on a delegation once and we were talking about gentrification in the United States and they were like, oh yeah, settler colonialism here is just like gentrification in Brooklyn. And I'm like, no, it's really not. It's really not. I, I get really irritated when they build that juice bar or that Starbucks in my Brooklyn neighborhood and yes, I get frustrated by it. And yes, it's annoying when my friends get displaced or where I gotta go an extra, you know, two stops on the train for, for a haircut because all the black people have been displaced. I get it, but that is not the same as what's happening here in Jerusalem. That's not the same as what's happening. I mean, we could, we could, we could go, we could look at Beit Hanina, we could look at, I mean, we could go, we could go, we could go, we could go around, around Palestine, look at all the places where people are being displaced, pushed out of their homes, having their land stolen from them with fake contracts, people who are, who are, being, who are being harassed and heckled every single day, people who have bleach and urine poured on them, people who, who are literally stateless. And so learning from each other through those tensions and those contradictions and those differences, I think, are just as important. I think we have to show up for each other. 
It's important for me to come to Free Palestine marches, and I hope that it's important for you all to come to marches about black people and about brown people. It's important for us to come together, but I need to come even if you don't show up. And you need to come even if I don't show up. Because showing up for each other is an important thing. We have to build for each other, but I don't want it to be, I don't want our language to become so market-driven that we only think about connecting to one another through market logic. Well, if you come to my rally, I come to your rally. Well, if you struggle with me, I'll struggle with you. No, our struggles, we have to engage in these struggles because they're morally right and because they're morally just. And we have to operate at the intersections of our, of our sameness and our difference. And if we do that, I think we can begin to wrestle with these contradictions. We can begin to open up possibilities and we can begin to have a real global movement, a real global movement that is centered on freeing Palestine, on abolishing prison, on destroying market logic, on ending white supremacy, on ending homophobia and transphobia, ending ableism. This has to be the work that we do everywhere. Anyway, let me pause there um, and, and let's, let's, let's have a conversation. Yeah. Thanks, Marv. It's really an honor to sit beside you tonight and to have this great audience. And I'm really excited. Being working in the Palestinian political prisoners issue for 25 years, I learned a lot about the similarities between political prisoners in Palestine and political prisoners in so many different conflicts and including in the United States. And I think, yes, it is connected to the fact that we are both living under colonial settler regime because we are just 70 years old under this uh, settler colonial regime. And this is why you still see displacement taking place now and evacuation, destruction of Bedouin communities and so on, land confiscation, controlling water resources, killings on daily basis, but this is, was your reality hundreds of years ago, I think, and it continues in different ways. And these regimes are developing strategies together. So for me, the issue of the prisoners actually didn't the, similar, the connection didn't start just in Ferguson, much, much before, because when I just started to practice as a lawyer and started to meet politi Palestinian political uh, prisoners, I was shocked about how much educated they were in relation to other contexts and to make these connections with people like Angela Davis, George Jackson, and others, and others, and not just in the United States, in Ireland, in like uh, uh, the past country, and in Iran, in so many other contexts. They were very well aware about these similarities and how they should resist in a similar way. So the idea of a hunger strike wasn't invented in Palestine. They learned from the Irish example, and they developed the practice, and they were showing solidarity, and they were really having a very powerful solidarity in the 70s and in the 80s, whenever they heard about a hunger strike of another group of political prisoners, whether in Ireland, in Turkey, in other 
countries. So I think it's very, very important to learn the experiences of the others and to try to find the way how we can combat these policies uh, together. Because when I think about torture, there is a huge similarity between techniques of torture that they were developed and used in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, and 80s in the Palestinian context under the Israeli security service in the different interrogation centers, very harsh physical uh, uh, techniques that they were used in other countries. I'm sure you all remember the sack from Abu Ghraib. It's not an American invention. It's an Israeli invention. Mm. Thousands of Palestinian prisoners who were interrogated in the Russian compound in Ashkelon, in Petah Tikva, in El Jalami, till 99, till the high court ruling, actually, in September 99, they were all the time spending more than 70 days, 90 days, the whole day with this sack on their uh, head, tied in a very painful position, what we call in Arabic shabih, any very small kindergarten chair. All these brutal physical techniques were changing, or let's say were moving toward being more psychological torture after uh, uh, 99 high court uh, ruling. If we talk about solitary confinement, the methods of solitary confinement, I think the Israelis got the experience from the Turkish and from the uh, 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 Americans in the T uh, design uh, complex in the uh, American uh, prisons. So they do share uh, information and they do share trainings and developing and thinking and being creative about how you can torture, how you can use physical or psychological torture without leaving any marks on the body. If we talk about the force feeding, I don't know if you heard that lately in 2015, a law was confirmed in Israel about force feeding after the so long hunger individual or mass hunger strike in the Palestinian prisoners movement. The Knesset issued the force feeding bill, so now it's according to the law in Israel that they can use force feeding. And I believe they were not able to do it unless if it was used in Guantanamo and no one in the world got so uh, um, high, uh, uh, like talking about the U.S. practice of the daily force feeding of prisoners in Guantanamo. Though in Israel they didn't use that till today after the confirmation of the law, but of course the history says that they used it in the 80s. Three detainees died out of force feeding, and this is why actually the Israeli high court ruled in the past uh, uh, to ban the force feeding, but now uh, it was never discussed again in front of the high court. Arresting children, and I think this is a very, very powerful uh, uh, topic that can shed light about how they use imprisonment in order to control communities, in order to control a whole generation, actually. Because in Palestine, just think about the statistics. Every year, more than 1,000 children would be arrested. In 2017, 1,400 children were arrested. So far, till the end of June this year, 630-something children were arrested. 
all these children between 12 and 18, of course, they would be uh, under such severe uh, uh, torture, ill treatment, and the bad uh, uh, experience that will affect them for so long. I'm sure Ahd was very strong. She's a very strong uh, uh, girl. I met her twice in detention. And I'm sure that she has a family that also will support her. But think about the other children, that they don't have this self-power. They don't have this very warm uh, community around that, that they can help them. I can't forget a child that DCI, my colleagues, were dealing with, Rakan, his first name, that he was imprisoned and he committed suicide after being released because he couldn't handle the experience of the torture in the interrogation center. More than 40% of these children would be suffering, facing solitary confinement in interrogation. Imagine a child 16 years old, he would be isolated for three weeks or four weeks without even meeting his lawyer. And these uh, uh, policies are used very often in Chicago, in other, in other places, maybe not for the same reasons. Children there, they don't throw stone very often on daily basis, but of course, any small violation in schools in Chicago would cause the luck of the black uh, uh, children, which means they would be having a report for the rest of their life in uh, uh, the record. They can face lots of difficulties when they want to uh, go to study and so on. So it will affect not just the child himself. It will affect the whole uh, family, the whole community at the end of the day. In the same week of arresting Ahd, they arrested, uh, 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 they started to arrest lots of children from the same village. They ended up in less than one month arresting more than 25 kids from Nabi Saleh. What's this? Why? Like, what's, what's the security threat that these children caused in Nabi Saleh? Probably zero, but the source of information that they can collect from these children in order to know everything that happens in the Nabi Saleh, to send the message that we can control your life totally. We know what you're planning, what you are going to do. And they actually, by this, they can paralyze a total communities that they can, uh, like they protest against the wall, against settlement, or against land confiscation, uh, uh, house demolitions. And this is how imprisonment actually, at the end of the day, is used as a tool of control. It's not about security. It's not about protecting the state security or that these people are so involved in so serious crimes. Just today, a, a poet from uh, 48, Darin Tatur, was sentenced for five months custodial imprisonment because she dared to publish a poem in 2015 uh, 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 like supporting the uh, Palestinian uprising in October 2015, the uh, uh, like very uh, start initiatives in October 2015. She was arrested then for three months in prison, and then she was released under house arrest till yesterday. Actually, she's still under house arrest because if they want to appeal, she would be kept under house arrest till the appeal decision. If to serve the five months, like she would serve two because she already did three. And the court today refused to offer her to change the custodial sentence with a public service. For what? For a point. 
two months ago, an Israeli soldier who killed a Palestinian youth, 17 years old, was sentenced for nine months. Elior Azaria, the Israeli soldier who verified killing the Palestinian guy, uh, Sharif in Hebron, who was sentenced first for one year and a half, he got amnesty and he got an early release and he spent exactly nine months, like one month more than Ahd al-Tamimi who was convicted with a uh, stone throwing and uh, insulting a soldier. So what we can do about all these things? I think the key point here why such states can go so far with such policies and war crimes and violations, accountability. Lack of accountability. And this is what we should do. Like, I totally agree with what you proposed about the uh, solidarity and the uh, 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 campaigns on the grassroots level, but it's not enough alone. I think we should discuss, and this is uh, uh, what we are looking for, also as Idomir, but as human rights organizations in the Palestinian context, accountability. How, how we can reach accountability, whether in legal uh, uh, forms, like in using legal, uh, other legal systems, universal jurisdiction, the ICC, international criminal co uh, uh, high, uh, justice court, and so on. But I think supporting the boycott, divestment, and sanction Absolutely. campaign would be a great uh, asset to the uh, struggle, and not just for the Palestinians. And I will end up with an example that, for me, was a very successful campaign, G4S. The security company G4S wasn't just present in six Israeli prisons, where we have like 20 prisons where Palestinian prisoners are held. But they had a role as well in the checkpoints and in the uh, settlement security uh, service. So Damir, with the BNC and other in, uh, local and international organizations, initiated the campaign against this security Danish-British uh, company. And it seems they were involved in serious violations, not just in the Palestinian context. If you compare what they were involved in with South African prisons, with the UK prisons, with immigrants, in America and in other countries, it caused a huge support for the campaign, not just because of the case of the Palestinian political prisoners. So at the end, two years after, the company decided not to continue with the contracts with the prison system in Israel. It was a huge success for us, and this is, shows why we have to learn from each other, why we have to share efforts, why we have to support each other. Thank you.